Welcome to the Empowering the Future of Work podcast from InTech Ideas. The world of work has changed dramatically for companies and their team members. It's almost like someone hit the fast forward button, creating a new normal for work. The challenges we're encountering are endless, but there is a better way. This podcast focuses on tips, tricks, and topics to help you to excel in this new normal. We'd love for you to join us after the show when we host discussions about each topic on LinkedIn and Twitter. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is the episode one of season two from the Empower the Future of Work podcast from InTech Ideas. Um, this is Skip Marshall, and I'm really excited to have somebody special with us today, somebody I've known for a number of years um, in a lot of different capacities, and uh, she's just a wealth of information and super excited to have Rachel Fisher with us. Rachel, how are you? I'm great, Skip. Thanks. And I'm really honored to be your uh, uh, episode one for season two um, and all the the lovely things you said, and we will probably be talking about those numbers of years at some point. <laughs> Yes, lots lots of uh, experiences, lots of fun over the years. Um, yeah. and you know, I know it's you've got you've got a great background. So let's start there. But tell us a little bit about your kind of getting started in your entrepreneurial experiences and um, kind of some yeah. of your background. Uh, thanks. Um, well, I was born. No, uh, it actually, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it does start there. They start with, you know, I was a born entrepreneur. I was, you know, that's my, my husband, 100%. He was, you know, he was running his own uh, reselling candy business in elementary school until he realized that he didn't get good enough margins and he started making his own candy, you know, <laughs> that wasn't right. Right. That wasn't me. Um, so, you know, I think I fell into entrepreneurship because I knew I didn't want to do something traditional. I kind of headed towards academia. I thought I was going to be, you know, a scientist and went to grad school. Uh, actually, oceanography school is what drew me to Tampa, Florida um, after college. And, you know, when I decided academia wasn't for me anymore, I really had no idea what I was going to do with myself. Um, so, but I taught school because working with and educating kids was what I had always done. My summer job wasn't Orange Julius at the mall. It wasn't, you know, uh, working at Great Adventure, like a lot of my friends who fortunately got me in. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was working with kids in, in camps and they were always educational science camps, like the ones I went to when I was a kid. Um, so teaching and particularly, I got an opportunity to teach with an outstanding, uh, private school in Tampa, uh, now Corbett prep used to be independent day school, um, uh, under a headmistress who is known for, uh, a positive obsession with professional development. I really got thrown into the deep end of great teaching, um, and learned a ton. And I was teaching uh, sixth grade, primarily some seventh and eighth grade um, STEM classes. So a ton of fun right in my wheelhouse. Um, and again, where does the entrepreneurship come in? Uh, well, at the end of teaching, uh, after about a, a year and a half, um, my husband came to me and he had started a business with my mother-in-law and said, hey, you know, we've started this business. Do you want to come join us? I jokingly say that he said, hey, you're not <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Why don't you come join us? Um, but you know, there was, there was an, an aspect, it was a business that was focused on an educational aspect. Um, we were doing basically building curriculum around behavior change and health and wellness. And we were giving, uh, classes and workshops and facilitations to parks and recreation and, and, um, you know, public health agencies and hospital systems. And so there was an education aspect to it. Um, so jumping into it didn't seem as foreign as I thought. 
And then, you know, it turned out to actually be about building a business. And that was all a total roller coaster of, I have no idea what I'm doing, but um, (laughs) I really didn't intend to be an expert in entrepreneurship. (laughs) Um, It was, it was an accident. You can, you can fall into it. You don't have to be born there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. But it, there's definitely a, a mindset and a skill set and a personality that really kind of fits with with that uh, that type of role. Now, you continued on from that and and got into training substitute teachers and doing other stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, we were well. First of all, we got into online learning. So just like you know, it was really early. It was the early 2000s, and online learning was pretty much only happening in the corporate world. And it was mostly about compliance. It was heavily regulated industries were using it, like legal and banking and that kind of thing, for continuing ed. And um, it was starting to grow beyond that, but not in other sectors. And we really brought it to the sectors we were working with, which was government, you know, public sector and nonprofit. So we built a, a learning management system. We brought in a business partner and we, we built a learning management system and we were building content for that system for our clients. They were licensing the software and taking things like their membership information and trainings and turning that into online for the members, uh, for like the National Recreation and Park Association, for example. Um, and at the time we said, hey, we, we basically have all of the machinery to build content for other people. Why don't we build content for our own company and offer our own? And we had a real brain trust around education and started looking at what are the gaps in the K-12 space? Is this something that we could bring to that space? And substitute teaching was a really uh, clear, obvious, open starting point because it was a population that needed education, but that wasn't something that uh, most school districts were doing or were able to do at the time at all. Um, And if they were, it was largely in person, which created a lot of um, basically supply problems to the classroom, because if you required someone to have training first, but you have an open classroom, you know, what do you do? So uh, online was a was a real um, timely solution, although we were a little early. (laughs) We did. We did suffer from being a little early, but um, but generally that worked out. And then we ended up building out an entire library of online uh, courses for the adults who work in public education. So everyone, including teachers, but also, you know, you could be a bus driver and we had trainings for you. Right. Right. And now you, you continue on, you had a, a successful exit from that business and then you got kind of shifted gears a little bit and, and got into the other side of entrepreneurship. Yes. So, uh, we did, we, we had, uh, a strategic partnership um, with Frontline Technologies at the time. Uh, they were acquired by uh, Insight Venture Partners at the time, now Insight Partners. Um, and, and they had great market share in their space. It, and they were definitely a leader in their space. And, and market share is, a, is like kind of the holy grail in K-12. Um, so it was a great move on uh, IVP's part. And they bought Frontline. And Frontline bought a whole bunch of companies. They did a roll-up to build a human capital management system for K-12. And we were a piece of that. We were um, the, the, the L&D, the learning and development um, content piece of that overall thing. So we were acquired in early January 2016. We were the third acquisition um, out of what turned out to be like roughly 14 over the next you know, couple years. And uh, in the end, in, 
we were uh, an aqua hire. We moved, we, we worked for the company, you know, we helped grow and build as more and more acquisitions happened. It was crazy. Um, if there was a, if there was a meeting on the schedule, that was an all company meeting. That was not the quarterly company meeting. We knew it was an acquisition meeting, <laughs> <laughs> like full on. We'd be talking about which company we thought it right. was. Um, so, you know, it was that kind of pace. And 2017, September 2017, they announced that they had sold to Toma Bravo for $1.325 billion. So it was a unicorn. Um, so that was a really amazing experience. I realized I liked, you know, the scale stage and the growth stage and the whole thing. Um, and kind of the, the, you know, business, not just from zero to one, but beyond was really enjoyable. And then I had no background, you know, formally or education there. So that's why I decided to go back to school. I applied to Wharton to, you know, get my MBA specifically wanting to focus on, you know, finance um, and business and uh, started that in 2018, uh, just finished in June of 2020. Uh, amazing experience and learned exa exactly what I wanted, you know, world-class uh, education and network in finance and business. Um, and during that time, it's an EMBA, so they expected work <laughs> while you're going to school. Um, during that time, I had the uh, the pleasure of serving as the VP of investment operations for Florida Funders, which is the most active VC in the Southeast, um, located in Tampa, and headed up by partners who we all know well and have uh, worked with for for decades. Um, and you know, Tom Wallace and and Mark Blumenthal, Kevin. Adamek, uh, Mark Sokol. So uh, it was it was fun. It's it's a growing enterprise and in and of itself. And um, I learned how VC works. You know, from a from a truly not just operating standpoint, but being in on all those investment committee meetings and everything. You know how investors think, and and then you know we're angel investors as well. Uh, my husband and I now. So we also we're investors in you know in Florida funders. So we like, we have also seen the other side where you're an investor and right. you money into it and how it feels to do that. And, you know, we, it, it was really interesting to see both sides. I now have dual empathy and derision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can think of things no doubt. about both, you know, cause I've been both. Uh, right. Right. And you know, it's, it's interesting. The, you know, one of the things I think your perspective is very valuable because when people talk about entrepreneurship and startups and tech, they think about corporate businesses, they think about public businesses. They don't always think about the K-12 space and you spend a ton of time really focused on that space. And we're seeing a real, you know, an exciting growth in the space. You talked about the LMSs. So in the late nineties and early two thousands, obviously LMSs were starting to get their traction. That was really their birth. But as you mentioned, it was also very heavy in the corporate space. Mm -hmm. But that's really changed. And, and ed tech in particular is coming into its own. And you're now starting to see a lot more, um, at least notoriety or visibility in terms of the technologies coming out of that space. Um, so tell us a little bit about which, where you see that space headed right now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, gosh, the K-12 space, you know, <laughs> Like it's just my it's it's my heart and my pain um, all in one. It's you know it's it's everybody's heart and pain. We want the very very best for it, and we want that available to every child. And there's not a single person, parent or not, you know, man, woman or child, if you you know had them to interview and said 
if you could wave a magic wand and give a world-class education to every child on earth, would you do that? And there's not a single person that would say, no, I wouldn't do that. We all want that. Yet we know how far we are from that. So where's the gap? And the gap is where you expect it to be. It's, it's, it's policy, it's infrastructure, it's resources, it's opposing belief systems. It's, it's, you know, it's a whole, it's equity that goes to all kinds of institutional roots, like poverty that you can't just fix overnight. It's all kinds of stuff. Um, right. So it's not, it's not a simple problem. It's one of the interesting things in school. I took some, some classes when I was at Wharton around healthcare services delivery. And I happened to be um, part owner of a, of a healthcare services delivery uh, company at the time. And uh, learning much more about how the healthcare system worked gave me more perspective on the education system. Um, right. And <laughs> what I, I wrote this essentially like little essay for a homework assignment that said, what I've learned is if there's a really big glaring problem that everyone sees, and it's been around for a long time, and it's still not solved, it's not easy to solve. So the first thing that I think most people outside of thinking about education as a space um, need to do, uh, much like every other complicated space, is stop thinking it's going to be easy to solve. Um, that is, and that is something that ed tech, like ed tech doesn't solve the problem of poverty, you know, it, it can, but technology has a better chance of solving the education related aspects of the problems of poverty than anything right, else. Right. So, you know, it has been very frustrating over the years to watch ed tech, um, uh, not get the investment that it needs. And there's many reasons for that. Um, not all of which are bad. Uh, you know, it's just investment has to see return. You need markets that are big enough. You need, you know, you need these things uh, for investment to happen. So what's tremendous right now is that, um, you know, seeing, it's not just COVID. COVID is not the only moment in time that's happening for EdTech. If you looked at PitchBook's snapshot for EdTech uh, 2020, what they expected, you know, the, the sector to do worldwide, it's like $404 billion and a 16% you know, compound annual growth rate was expected between 2020 and 2025 in this space without COVID. That, you know, th that data predated COVID. Um, the reason it's growing so much is because of globalization, the rising middle class, and and go back to my original premise that every person on earth really wants kids to have a world-class education, which means that people in emerging uh, countries, people, uh, you know, want to give their kids access to a better tomorrow. They know education is the key to that. And technology is finally being uh, recognized as the best way to do that at scale. There are people who are very intelligent, very uh, well uh, thought of and, and, and correctly meaning in what they care about who hate the word scale in association with ed education. And I get it. Right. What I like to say is, and I know that I've gotten very wordy here. I'm sorry, but I'm happy. <laughs> you need me to take a breath. I will. Um, so what I like to say, I like to go back to one of my uh, very favorite first uh, books, which is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. So the story at the end, the aha that the children realize is that like and equal are not the same thing. And so it, what, the, what that is in the story, uh, an evil being has created a world in which the, everybody is, is like a robot. They all do exactly the same thing at the same time, you know, all the time. They're trapped in a world where every child walks outside and bounces the ball exactly three times at exactly the same pace and exactly the same clothes. You know, uh, it's, it's, you know, to use the big word hyperbole that I never understood until like a year ago. So now I like to use it. <laughs> um, it's, 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 
it's a, it's an extreme view, but, um, but what the, the kids understand is that that is not the same thing as being equal, that you can be different from one another, but still be equal. Right. I think that in the past, we saw educational equity, fairness as being giving everyone the same thing. The kids all bounce the ball three times, and that is fair. And we've realized kids are different, that that isn't fair, because some kids might need to bounce the ball more to really get the bouncing down. And some of them might not need to bounce it but once, and they got it. And some of them don't need to bounce a ball, because that's not the thing that's going to be what they contribute to the world. And, and. And so what, but, but to differentiate that way was impossible. It's impossible. I I was a teacher. I couldn't differentiate as a human being without tools to my 25 kids the way I couldn't, I just couldn't. It's you, you try, but you know, you're you're really not doing it. Um, But with data, you know, with, with, with assistance from AI and teachers aides done well, I can have so much more visibility on an ongoing basis into, you know, my students and what they're doing and how they're doing. Um, All of a sudden, then I can give them equal chance to learn, but they don't have to do it the same way, the same pace. Like that is the, the, what's going to happen in, in the new world and technology makes that possible. The, only good thing COVID has done is show us where we need to make more investments in order to move forward. Um, And we're seeing seeing investment pour in. The globalization of ed tech helps as well. That that investors now can invest in a company that can be global um, and not just depend on your own country's market, which even in the United States, our market is is a big market, but it's it's small for venture scale if you're sort of only in the US. Uh, But now- You know, so many companies can be global that all of a sudden it's just all opening up, which is very exciting. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see. You know, to your point, technology is a is a leveling effect, right? It levels the playing field. It gives us the equitable opportunities across the board, and that's that's ultimately how it succeeds. And we think about it. We talk a lot about the future of work. Those equitable opportunities are what is going to create the potential for a balanced future. And it's just, it's so essential and it's exciting to see. And as you know, you and I share that teacher background. And so for me, it's, it's, although my, my history has gone more to the corporate side over the last probably 15 years, um, my passion still lies in public education and the technology focus is, is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. Now, and, and, and technology also makes it easier to make investments, you know, into something that is not as, as big a return as maybe a corporate right. return, but technology just gives you margin, you know? So all of a sudden you can invest where you didn't used to be able to invest and make it work. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Exactly. I don't think it should all be charitable. I don't think it should all be government. I think that there is a, there is a very clear case for financial investment into educational technology for all age groups. Um, Finally here, you know, if you ever went through Spaceship Earth and Epcot Center and there was the little, (laughs) you know, the the virtual school, but with rich learning experiences, like it's coming, it's here because because the case of the demand is here and the money is following that. So, you know, I I expect to actually see change instead of just hope that it's going to come. Yeah, and it, it's it's really getting to that personalized experience, and it's without regard to whether you're talking K twelve or corporate or higher education or wherever. Um, we've come to expect, you know, because of our consumer experiences, we've come to expect a very personalized experience, and that's that's, that's right. the best way to create that for sure. Now you're getting ready. You're not getting ready. You're jumping right back in 
to the pool again of entrepreneurship and uh, started something new. Tell us a little bit about Hello Plato. Yeah. Um, so we got the band back together. Uh, it's, you know, my, myself and my husband and our former chief product officer, Julie Lutz from our last company. And of course we're working with you and, uh, you know, Chuck and, um, and full disclosure. It, yes. Yes. We're working together. Um, but you know, it, it Tampa has an interesting little e-learning pocket. That's a whole separate <laughs> of e-learning we can talk about. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we've basically got, um, the same team that we had before in the same roles that we had before. And I think that's because we, it worked well together. We worked well together, but what's exciting is I definitely think we're going for something that's a lot bigger this time, um, bigger in terms of impact and, and, and potential. And that's exciting to all of us. Um, so hello, Plato is a, an AI based learning platform built for WhatsApp. Uh, so, you know, in a nutshell, the, experientially, a teacher has a really simple authoring tool um, that he or she can use to build a course or an assessment. Um, you can build a full curriculum. It's up to you. But you can build something, you know, small or large really quickly and then distribute that, deliver it to your students over WhatsApp. Uh, the entire thing is guided by a conversational AI bot. That's Plato. Um, that makes the experience friendly and that over time is going to serve as a teacher's aid, you know, surfacing um, uh, performance information about, you know, students, individual students and content, as well as being a student aid, you know, being able to make content curation and study suggestions. Um, so the reach of this tool was is is outstanding. Um, you know, we are going to be able to reach, you know, the roughly 800 some we're still nailing down the number. Um, 800 million-ish students out there who have little to no access to, you know, Wi-Fi or computers, they could have full rich learning um, in their hand right now. So all of the students that are locked down right. all around the world, you know, could be learning over WhatsApp. And the teacher gets their, you know, their scores, their all of the data about, you know, their responses, they get really rich data. Um, but, you know, beyond just the reach to marginalized learners, it's it's going to grow into a personalized learning tool. That's the direction we need to go with more data for teachers that's ongoing. So instead of just getting, you know, data uh, a couple times a year off of standardized tests, you know, you can have sort of deep ongoing data all the time. Um, this is, this is the way <laughs> it's the Mandalorian, right? This is the way. Um, and we're really excited about, we have pilots on the ground in India um, and we have pilots starting in the United States and everybody that we show it to is really excited about it. You know, it started for us with wanting to kind of like deconstruct the learning management system, you know, to, right, to right. e-learning from some of the constraints that, um, that are just that are just tech legacy, right? That just come from the fact that this stuff was born in the late nineties and early two thousands and it needs a rethink. Um, everything is decentralized sure. now. So, you know, learning needs to become more decentralized as well to give people the greatest access to number of resources, whether those are human or, you know, tangible possible. Um, not just the resources you pack into, you know, a course package, but, you know, the resources, any resources that a teacher can pull together um, and being able to easily connect to people while you're inside of, a, of an asynchronous experience and, you know, leverage help, like all these things that messaging uh, platforms like WhatsApp make native, um, you know, we wanted to leverage and put in the hands of, you know, all of the world's learning learners, including the ones that are really marginalized by not having good tools. 
You know, it's interesting because the we were talking earlier about the start of the LMSs, and it's really only been, you know, 20 years, give or take. But a few years ago, was starting to hear, you know, the, the drumbeat, you know, is the LMS dead? Um, and without, you know, getting in a long, drawn-out conversation on that one, you know, my point was always they're not going to die. An LMS isn't going to die, but it is going to be largely relegated behind many solutions like Hello Plata that are actually um, driving the experience and personalizing the experience. The repositories for data will always be there, just like yeah. we need core HR systems and, you know, the other back office systems, but the experience is going to shift for sure. Um, now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up, and I know you're you're one that's never never expected to be treated differently, but you are definitely a role model for a lot of women entrepreneurs out there because it's you know particularly all the things that have gone on this year and brought attention to it. Um, women led companies are are an important thing, and it's something that I think not just needs to be celebrated but needs to be highlighted and brought out there because you know people and kids like my daughter out there seeing these women leaders out there is is so critical. Um, so if you could go back right to your past self, your prior self early on, as you were thinking about these endeavors, what is the advice you would share for those future women leaders out there or to yourself, your earlier self, um, on, on what you should be doing with this? Yeah. Um, you asked me that question to think about for this. So, uh, it's been, it's kind kind of a fun experience to think about it. Um, one of the things that was probably, you know, my least favorite part of the experience was, you know, the deep imposter syndrome struggles that I had along the way. Um, so the things that come to mind now as the older wiser me have a lot to do with sort of comforting the younger, comforting her uh, about the things that were difficult and inspiring her. So I, I think the first thing um, I said to you when you asked me that I would tell her is it's going to be okay. Um you're going to be fine. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be okay. Just, you know, so that she could relax a little and then be like, no, it's actually going to be great. You're going to, you're going to learn a ton. Like it's just going to be insane how much you learn at, uh, over the course of this process. Uh, and it, it, it'll, it'll be worth it. Even the, you know, even the times when it seems like, well, why did I do this? Or you're scared about, you know, tackling things you haven't done before. Um, you'll be really pleased that you did. So the first thing I would do is kind of uh, give her that, um, bit of advice. Um, you know, as a, as a specifically, um, female founder, I think the thing that I've, that's helped me a lot over time has been building strong relationships with other female founders and business owners. Um, so, and, and working with them, frankly, I now have an ethos that we need to actually work together to build wealth. So, um, you know, building a crew of, you know, uh, female friends who are also in business with whom you can share ideas, you can, uh, go in, go into business endeavors and invest together. You can help each other find talent. You can, you know, you can do all sorts of things to support one another. Um, I think I would tell her like lean into that because it's who you are and it's super helpful. Um, so, cause it's comfortable for me. That's also like, I just feel really comfortable working with other women to, you know, uh, reach goals together. Um, and, and I feel that that's something we need to do because it's harder to do in from an allyship perspective. You know, there's fewer allies um, and also allies at the end of the day don't totally understand what it is that it is to be you. And so there's, it's always useful to me to have some women that you can really that know what you're feeling when you explain some of the challenges and obstacles. 
you know, it's right, some, of, right. some of it is just like not knowing whether you're being helpful <laughs> by being a woman or not. Right. I'm not sure. Um, and then uh, I think the the last thing um, that I would tell myself and any other um, female founder is that um, you know no matter no matter what they you know no matter what's put in front of you. You, you know, you just, you can absolutely do it. I know I'm like looking for a less cliche way to say it. Um, but there really just isn't it, you there. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, the reason you feel imposter syndrome is because you are an imposter. Um, you know, you're tackling something new that you've never done before. And so if you're walking around telling people you're already an expert, then you're going to feel uncomfortable. But instead of, of, you know, embrace the fact that you're a quote unquote imposter and, and say, Hey, I know I'm going to figure this out. I know I'm going to, um, you know, leverage my network or that's definitely one thing I would also say is it's when make it happen and figure it out. And all that stuff does not mean by yourself. (laughs) Indeed. Absolutely. So leverage the people around you, not just your crew of female friends who help inspire you and everything, but leverage everyone around you. Um, and the, and the resources that you have in hand and know that you can do that. And, and then it's sort of, there's no, there's nothing you can't decide that you want to do. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that is a great advice. Great advice. Um, you know, it's the the imposter syndrome that you talked about. In fact, you had a, we talked about this. You had a LinkedIn post about that. Even read as resonated with me. So we all feel that. Um, but uh, I think it's a, a great opportunity for people to kind of reflect on that as well. Um, you know, we've kind of run out of time here, but I just want to mention one more thing. You do have a, a program that you are working with um, other female leaders called your Confidence Muscle Program. I don't remember the exact title of it, but We'll make sure that that information's in the show notes as well. So you can share a little bit about that there. Awesome. Um, you know, Rachel, it's, it's, as always, it's fun. I look so forward to watching Hello Plato take off um, as one of the kind of the leading technologies in the ed tech space um, as you get that going. And I appreciate you coming on the show and, um, you know, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much, Skip. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, and I, I'm just, it's a lot of fun to be working together again. And I, I look forward to it. I'm really excited about what's to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if you guys want to connect with Rachel, all her information is going to be in the show notes. We'll make sure that Maria gets it out there for you, um, as well as some information on Hello Plato and her uh, confidence muscle program that she's put together. So thank you again, everyone, for your time and listening in. And until next time. Thanks for joining us today on the Empowering the Future of Work podcast. Don't worry if you think you've missed something. We include everything in the show notes. You can also participate in the conversation by heading over to intechideas.com and clicking on the podcast link. You'll find information on each podcast plus links to our social media channels to continue the discussion. Finally, make sure to subscribe to the show and share it with a friend. Until next time.